0: Welcome to the Life Science and Marketing Podcast, where we discuss marketing and career insights and tips with leading experts from across the globe. Let's join our host, Paul Avery, CEO of Biostrata, as he chats with our next Life Science Marketing guest.
1: Today, I am joined by George Fradley. George has deep experience in the life sciences, including nearly 15 years working at 3M Healthcare at the start of her career. I met George while she was working at Exco InTouch, which later became part of ERT. These days, George puts her expertise to work as an independent marketing consultant. It's absolutely lovely to have you, George. Thanks for joining me.
0: Thanks, Paul. It's great to be on the the podcast. I'm really pleased to be invited.
1: Well, we're excited you're here because I think you've got a great story. So why don't we start with you telling us your story, how did you get where you are today?
0: Right. Well, I think I took a bit of a roundabout route into, into marketing. I actually started out as a chemist. I did a chemistry degree at Nottingham and uh, kind of just took a chemistry job because that's what I thought I had to do. And lucky enough, there's a lot of uh, industry around the local area. And I ended up at 3M, uh, who back in those days had a pharmaceutical division. So I developed asthma inhalers with them. Uh, which was you a know, great introduction to the industry, but I pretty quickly discovered that I'm really bad at chemistry and I do not have the uh, tenacity to stand at a bench all day and, and conduct experiments and, and do testing. So I kind of naturally over a couple of years started to move away from the bench side and look at other areas that I was really interested in and, and people recognised I was good at. Uh, and one thing I want to do is, is I definitely want to give kudos to 3M because I think this wouldn't have happened in other pharmaceutical ind- uh, companies, but they were really open to giving people opportunities according to what the skills they displayed as opposed to what their background might be. So um, working with asthma inhalers, I don't know whether you've ever used one. They're incredibly hard to use correctly. I know exactly how to use one and I can't do it. <laughs> uh, So they gave me a project, I don't even know why they gave an analytical chemist this project, they gave me a project to get a focus group of patients together and watch them using asthma inhalers. And I have to say, it's one of the most interesting things I ever did. Uh, And then I actually had this opportunity multiple times over the next few years, because we wanted to learn, you know, different aspects of, of what they were doing. But I sat and watched people of all ages and all backgrounds Using different kinds of asthma inhalers, understanding what kind of problems they had. Um, like why, why, you know, what was difficult? What, what was interesting? Um, and and really that's where I, I started out because then I went back and I explained that to people in the labs and people in the development device development areas. And so really that's where it all started out for me was, um, that, that ability to, to understand where someone else is coming from and then like bring the two sides together. So bringing communication together from patients and to device engineers and pharmaceutical scientists so that everyone understands. So that's kind of a roundabout way of talking about it, but, but that really set me out of chemistry and into marketing. Love that. Having... Done that side of the, you know, and started to work with the marketing team. I started, they, I think they saw me as a fantastic resource actually, because I started writing articles, I did conference presentations, I would go with the business development team to customers to explain what we'd experienced and, and why what we were doing was going to resolve patients' problems, uh, and started to, you know, really move from the lab into the commercial side of the business. And I was lucky enough to be sponsored to do an MBA by them really na- um, sort of navigated towards marketing rather than business development because that would have been an obvious way for me to go too. Um, and so, yeah, in about twenty eight nine, I started working t- directly for the marketing team. And then in 2010, when I had got my MBA, they actually gave me the <laughs> gave me the global ma- um, MDI marketing account, which was amazing for, for 3M. So, I sort of went from being a chemist on the bench through to the, you know, for the full global marketing manager for the for the um inhalation business for, for 3m which was really great it gave me a fantastic bra- um grounding if you think about the size of 3m their brand strength um they you know really brought me along really supportive to bring me alongside to understand you know how you do marketing in a real business rather than how it was on paper in you know in, in a qualification um and i was able to sort of learn how to do the strategy side what i had been thinking and how you bring that through into formal planning processes um and all for an industry i knew really well so i think that was you know for me a really great way into the business and into into the marketing side of things
1: right so what happened next then after after 3m where did you uh travel to
0: <laughs> yeah um in 2012, uh, I was approached by uh, an epro provider. So epro is patient reported or electronic patient reported outcomes and it's a way of collecting patient data in clinical trials. And so um you know so I was approached and, and sort of saw this opportunity to join what was Exco in touch, who at the time were a really small company. I think I was like we had about 30 employees, so I went from 75,000 employees to 30, which was very strange. Yeah. Um uh, but uh, you know, I really like the business, the vision that these guys had um, at the time. Everything had been done on paper, or potentially these reported outcomes had been captured using PDAs. So I'm sure you remember a PDA. Just about. Uh, for anyone that doesn't, <laughs> uh, a, a, a personal digital assistant, which were um, really not assistants at all. They were just hard to use. They right. always broke. I mean, anyone that used one, I yeah had one for. Setting meetings during other meetings during meetings that never actually synced with my computer and was really unhelpful. Right. Um, So we used to, clinical trials used to hand these out to patients and say, oh, fill in a diary. So it might be, how are you feeling today? Did you take your medication today? Uh, Those sorts of questions um, on these PDAs. And they were, you know, old and didn't work well and hard to use and hard to charge and all those things. So Exco was to move that onto smartphones you know it was just at the time they'd been doing some stuff with with the previous uh, regular phones I guess um and I really liked the business the vision that they were doing was like let's try and make things better for patients again reflecting back to the early experience why I started moving into marketing mm-hmm. was about patience and so um I got on board joined the business and you know a phenomenal experience for me really made me I feel um I was able to build my own strategy, you know, put into practice all the stuff that I'd learned building the the brand from a small company up to, you know, what became a really, you know, significant industry player. Um put that into practice. So, yeah, that's really where I moved through and that's where I feel like I found my own feet as a marketer.
1: What did you feel was the biggest difference between working at a big company and a small company?
0: Oh, that's a great question. Um uh, autonomy is what I'm going to say. And and that's not to say that 3M didn't give me that opportunity to to put my ideas forward. But the reality is, when you've got a big business, you've got a set practice of ways of doing things, you have to have some uh, um, continuity with what other you know, areas of the business and then sort of divisions within that whole business are working to. Uh, whereas in that small company, you know, we could really push forward the best way that that we, we we felt we needed to, um, that I could sort of explain why I felt a particular tactic or, or approach was needed and everyone would get on board with that and then find ways to improve it. Mm. Um, and I guess actually that that probably is another aspect of it, being nimble. So we um, at Exco, we were changing things constantly. We were just like, put something out. No, that didn't work. What else can we do? Oh, we've got something new. Let's put that into the mix. Really, um, you know, low budgets, but being really clever about how you spend those budgets and really clever about how you get your message across rather than, I guess, what's a accepted plan and strategy that then you sort of move through for the years and you you, you through the, through the financial year. And you can't necessarily change easily in a large organization just because you've got too many factors that have to move at the same time alongside Mm -hmm. with you.
1: There's lots of cogs that are interconnected. And if you disrupt one too much, then everything else breaks. But in a small business, definitely easier. Um, I loved the work that you were all doing at Exco. And I think it was the first time I ever heard the concept. And I can't remember the name of it. Hopefully you can remind me of them. Like the car park paradox, people coming back to a clinical trial, but sitting in the car and trying to fill in the note for how they took their medication and how their symptoms had been. But just trying to remember like the month before because it's like oh no i've got to to the you know to the clinical trial center or to the hospital or to wherever the trial's being run out of and then filling everything out in the car and using mobile devices enabling people to to do that more in real time
0: yeah exactly so yeah that that was a real study that was done to prove the the value of electronic and it was actually done to prove the personal digital assistant back in the day but of course it's and it's still reference i mean that it must be 20 years old now that study And what it basically did, they, if anyone's ever been in a clinical trial, when you get these um, paper uh, diaries, as they're called, paper reported outcomes, you have so many sheets of paper, you get a lever arch file effectively, and you may get more than one. So they put light sensors into the file to see whether or not it was opened. And of course, you could prove that it hadn't been opened as many times as there were diaries, but also some of them were only opened literally right before we call that car park syndrome because they were literally open right before the visit right uh, and then everything was filled in up to that visit so it was a really pivotal um piece of research that that yeah is, is very much still referenced today uh because there's still a uh we still haven't got everything electronic there's still a lot of of this stuff is still done on paper which is still you know a, a big fight for the industry and there will be obviously always exceptions where it's required but uh yeah, it takes a long time. Our industry doesn't change quickly, that's for sure.
1: No, certainly the regulations within it make it hard. But its um, I remember when I learned that thinking, oh, it's always the things you don't expect that are going to massively impact the quality of the data that you get or the effectiveness of your trial. And a lot of it's down to human behavior, right? And um, yeah. i finding clever ways around that. I think we even at some point talked about multiple different ways you could collect that data in real time not just smartphones maybe even like smart speakers and stuff right in terms of (laughs) was there a way of like alexa asking you how did you get on with your medicine today
0: you know what it's it's all theoretically possible i mean we did one with um i can't even remember what was the microsoft uh playstation type thing where you um where you had um i can't even think what it's called now paul um was it Connect One or something where you you like we you could wave your arm this side for yes and wave your arm that side for no? We had that on on display at one of our our conferences back in the day.
1: Oh wow, for, cool! I, yeah. I think that was an Xbox Connect, like the little box on top Xbox of the TV. Connect, yeah, yeah,
0: that's it, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we we tried a diary with that. I mean, the reality is that you know, the validation of that would be really hard, but
1: but I love the innovative thinking idea, that you yeah. used to do. Like, how can we how can we make this as easy as possible for patients, and therefore. Yeah improve the quality of our our data but um yes then Exco became ERT yeah um what we well, are yeah, what happened next
0: right well I mean I want to talk a little bit about sort of the, the the move to ERT actually uh, if we can because I've just talked about the the, the starter of my time at xco but one of the things I think that was interesting from a marketing point of view um is that we actually were changing things really quickly. So we took um, a biz, uh, an industry, if you like, that, that is resistant to change. And, and like you say, from regula- uh, the regulations, it could be quite hard to change. Um, and so we were pushing something that was outside of a lot of people's comfort zone. We were pushing mo- using smartphones and ideally using people's own smartphones. That's really what, and it's still a challenge today, called bring your own device. Right. Um, And to get the ability to use people's own smartphones to fill in these diaries uh, and prove that they won't be different results than if you actually handed them the same smartphone for every patient in the study. Right. Um, And and we were really fighting an industry that didn't want to change. So the pharmaceutical companies are risk averse and nervous of change. And our competitors absolutely didn't want that to change because it it was not their business model. And so we started out, you know, we think about we're putting a lot of thought leadership out there, trying to explain why it's OK. You know, it, this is the way to do it. Why is this the way to do it? And then explain to people why it's not risk. You know, well, why there's, there's minimal risk with doing that. Um That was really key. And at first we had competitors constantly giving, you know, sort of putting articles out there of why it was risky or trying to combat what we were saying. And there was a point probably around 2014 2015 where suddenly it felt like there had been a real shift in the way the industry looked uh, and viewed things and suddenly our competitors were copying what we were saying and we'd say like i wrote that i've written that (laughs) but it's in your stuff now um uh and so which for me actually is the biggest compliment because you've got these people that are these competitors that are you know stayed in the industry they don't want to change they obviously and now recognising that it has to change. And so obviously changing their strategy so that they can service that need. But then actually the marketing side is actually reflecting some of the things you're saying, which just strengthens it in the industry's mind. And that's really a big part of it for me. Like, And we used to talk about this. This is the biggest form of flattery when your competitors copy what you're doing. But we then had the challenge of trying to move our message on. So, okay, always keeping ahead of them. Where are we pushing next? And so that last sort of 18 months at Exco before we were acquired by ERT um, was incredibly exciting. Probably the most exciting time of 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 my career. This, you know, the business is growing really quickly, but we're we're a team that are working really really well together and really pulling in one direction. Um, moving the change. We were growing in our size. We were growing in our industry share. We were actually. I mean. in 2012, we must have just been a minor industry player. You know, I don't know what our, our market share was, but we were the third biggest epro provider when we were bought by ERT. Right. Uh, and that really shows the shift that was happening. Um, and so, you know, from, a, from sort of, when I was thinking about doing this podcast, I was like, that actually was a real, uh, you know, at that time where we had to be nimble and we had to continually think of ways to be credible. Uh, we didn't want to um, sort of push too far and take you know, this this lead that we were getting, and and throw it away because we'd we'd push people further than they were comfortable with. So always trying to be credible to tell stories to show physically. So we had things like you know sort of the way that diaries were or device integrations, and other people claimed the same thing. But okay, well we'll show that we've got it because if you can show it, then it's then it's real and it's credible mm. and it gives confidence, and and we can show it in conferences and we can show it in customer meetings and and, and explain how we're achieving it and that was such an important part of what we did I really feel that that was why we got that you know we got credibility then we started to get your customers truly on board working with them to move the products forward and change the way things are done and then once you've got those lead customers coming then other people will come with you because it's like no one likes to put their foot Out first, but once one person's done it, then everybody is, you know, comfortable with 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 doing that.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, is what they say. Yeah. But when you're trying to lead the pack and you've done a lot of the hard thinking and the hard work to craft that message and to give it credibility, and then yeah, and then people kind of maybe other companies look to surf the coattails (laughs) of that. I think you've both are true, right? It's both kind of frustrating and annoying, but also a good indication that you're heading in the right direction. And I remember when when we launched Biostrata, we offered inbound services from the get-go, um, oh, yeah. even though inbound marketing was still only really emerging in, in a number of sectors. And certainly, it wasn't really being done very much in the life sciences. Yeah. But then within like two or three years, a lot of our competitors offered inbound marketing services. Um and I think the thing that always stuck with me is if you're leading the pack, A, you probably know a lot more about that area than any other competitors that maybe try and move in later. True. Plus, if if it takes, I don't know how long it took for, you know, XCO's competitors to really think, oh, we probably need to get on that train. But there are so many carriages back, you're probably already cooking up your next thing, and they're still only just getting to grips with what you've been saying for 6, 12, 18, 24 months. So I think if you if you believe in that approach, right, that you're going to lead the industry and you trust in the fact that even if people sort of leverage that as a springboard, you're still going to be ahead of them because you're already thinking about the next thing when they're just thinking about what you're thinking about before.
0: Yeah. And that's definitely true. And from the product development side as well, that you if you've got that vision and you've got the sight of where you're going to go, and obviously it, it flexes. But but if you've got the site of where you're going to go, then your whole product is developed to get there rather than you've got this foundation that's almost dragging you back. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, you know, something I, I've definitely seen. And the, and the companies that I enjoy working with most are, are ones that are working on that vision and working towards change. And I, I don't know why that is that I enjoy that more. But where you've got that that and we're going to change the way things are done and, and, and we're setting up to be able to achieve it, uh, it's always more exciting.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. So um, thanks for going into detail about that because I think it's quite illustrative in a number of areas. Um, mm. What happened next?
0: Okay. Okay, so then we get to ERT. So I, we'll go back to that story. So um, ERT uh, yeah, really was um, bringing together a lot of these, these E-Pro providers and they, they've got lots of experience in, in lots of different areas. But um, because they'd uh, come from one of the largest and one of the original um, E-Pro developers um for the industry um that side of the, of the business was really strong um and they actually recognized in a lot of the exco people that we'd be, really been patient focused and and that again is quite hard because if you're focused on your customer of course c- patients don't buy anything off off vendors right customers are uh sponsors and sometimes cro clinical study teams so they actually set up um, a division called the Digital Patient Division, which was all about like, okay, now how can we take this stuff, get out, I guess, out of clinical and in, into, the, into the post-approval world um, and and really think about digital health. Uh, how can we move that forward? We did some really cool projects. One of the exciting apps that we did and um, one of the digital health solutions was called Target My Hives, which was for with, uh, people with chronic urticaria. Uh, and it was a digital community uh, that allowed them to have conversations amongst themselves to help give advice, support each other through, I mean, it's effectively Facebook for a um, health community right. in, in many ways, but then actually wanted to bring in uh, the ability to connect with doctors and with um, pharmacists and healthcare specialists as well. And that's where the, the vision was going with that. Obviously, this was, was uh, sponsored by a pharma company. Um Yes, it's still going to, to my knowledge, and actually got really strong in some places where they haven't got great access to healthcare. Like I think Brazil was our biggest community was was out there, so uh, they were able to speak in local language, uh, and 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 I guess support and, and and give each other advice. So that was a really exciting project. Um, uh, a really really exciting uh, project to work on. To we did this thing called a Thunderclap campaign. Do you remember Thunderclap? Oh, that was a very short-lived thing. I
1: that, don't, but I but now I want to know more for sure. Now you want
0: to know? Yeah. It was stopped very quickly by the uh, social media giants. Basically, it was a, a I guess a, a an add-on app uh, to Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn, um, uh, where you got people to sign up to this Thunderclap, and we gave everybody like the the social post that they were going to do uh, by signing up, and then at the exact time on the exact day, they would all get pushed out from all these accounts. So it was on launch day to try and reach people with a carrier. You know how are the how are they going to like get the message out? Well, if we get a hundred people, three hundred people, a thousand people to sign up to to put this message out, then it actually goes across social media. Right which worked really well. Um, you know what, I, I wish now I've said that. I remember how many people we actually got signed up for it. But we got this enormous noise and it started trending. Um, and we got, you know, a, 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 we, we hit our target, which was I think a thousand ups within the first week. And we certainly hit that that target f- for the program, for the project. And of course, once people with urticaria start using the program, then they, word of mouth, it, it, it really snowballs and, mm. and really goes. But that was a really interesting campaign to try because and I can see why the social media companies locked that down pretty quickly, but it was a really good way to make noise and, and get a, an instant sort of notice across it. So that was a great thing to do.
1: Yeah, I love story. It's um, that concerted effort to trend. And then, like you yeah. said, once the snowball's rolling down the hill, it picks up speed and it picks up snow, right? And it's, uh, yeah. it's a boulder before you know it. Yeah, very interesting.
0: Yeah, it's great. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, that was that was sort of the most fun part of that. And then um, sort of from ERT, I decided that I wanted to have a change. I, I took a, a, a quick detour into legal technology, um, discovered that I care a lot less about lawyers than I do about patients.
1: Right.
0: <laughs> that's, a, that's a little unfair, but um, it was great. It was interesting for me to see that the theory of what I was doing was exactly the same. It was a software company that was really pushing forward, trying to do something different, trying to integrate stuff together and make life um easier for people in law firms. But the reality was kind of it's just not for me. And I really love working in the pharmacide. I I, you know, find the science interesting and really do care about what happens for patients at the end of the day. So um I I sort of was there for a little bit and then I thought, well, no, I need to get back. So how am I gonna get back? And uh some of the people I'd worked with at, at Exco were like, well, we haven't got a full time job for you but like we like i'd love you on board for a couple of days a week and um sort from that i took the the um the the step i guess and the leap to become a consultant uh and um and actually did it in i hit the right time february 22 uh sorry, february 2020 was my first d- um time consulting right before covid hit wow uh just took on my first client which was a drug safety monitoring client uh software and uh you know sort of rode out through COVID nineteen um with them, which i I'd like to talk about in a second because I've got some really interesting stuff we did there. Um but yeah. So became a consultant really and, and since then I've been working uh normally with two or three clients at a time. Uh I'd like to give people sort of focus time. I'm very much about getting deep into the message and the and the strategy of what they're trying to achieve uh and helping them perhaps have a different outlook on how they're going to push forward and and, and and build awareness and, and build their brand um, and credibility in the market. So, yeah, it's been, that's coming up on four years. It won't be long before four years now. And it's I've, I've really, really loved it.
1: Oh, I'm glad. Time flies when you're having fun, as they say. It, but, does. Um, it does. You sounded like one particular client there. You had lots of fun and you had some interesting stuff to, to tell us. So tell us a bit about that experience.
0: Okay. So, uh, well, the clients, my meds and me, um, uh, which are now part of a company called Connexa. Um, I, yeah, I literally joined them on the 1st of February 2020 and we were looking for, they've got a, um, had a, um, a platform called Reportum that was a, a technology to record drug safety reports. So adverse events reports and it could be done by patients and doctors. They've got sort of a, a consumer facing, um, uh, side to it, but also by the expert teams and in, in call centers and, and patient support nurses and stuff. So they've got this really interesting technology. Um, the founders had come out of um, big pharma, mostly GSK, pharmacovigilance teams. So they really knew what they were talking about and they needed to, to move their business forward. So I went in with this intention of, yeah, I'm going to write you a plan. I'm going to write you a strategy. Let's get some messaging together. And then five weeks later, we're all locked down and shut in our houses Uh, for covid um but actually that just gave us an amazing opportunity because the ceo particularly had this like um he'd been um a a medical doctor first and then been at gsk running a lot of their pharmacovigilance um sides of things he'd actually run uh, uh, or done the pandemic planning for the h1n1 uh flu pandemic which was 2008 9 i want to say so he just sat down with me like we were well not sat down on Teams. Uh, we were talking <laughs> and said, well, I, this is what's going to happen next. Like, this is what's going to, all the pharma companies going to be doing. You're going to have interactions of COVID with existing drugs. We've got the vaccination programs. We're going to have the interactions for that. This is this is how it's going to spread. And I, I sort of like, oh, hang on, you, you really know what you're talking about here. And, and no one knows, we, none of us know, we're all floundering. So we started writing some basic articles on what would happen with a pandemic. Of course, um, journals were all excited to take that kind of content because it's relevant, people want to read it. So we got quite a lot of publication there. And then we started working on a white paper um, on like, okay, so what what level of side effects do we expect from a vaccine? So, you know, the whole world is about to be vaccinated as soon as we've got one available. We were writing this in the summer of 2020 and then we updated it towards the back end of 2020 as well. Um, So... Look at the number of adverse events. okay, well, what's happened with similar you know flu vaccines actually have a similar base to most of the vaccines, not necessarily the mRNA. So what happens with the with, with those vaccines? How many adverse events do you get? Okay, so let's say it's one in one in ten thousand is a serious adverse event. Well, if you're about to um vaccinate hundred million people, then you've got ten thousand serious adverse events. And so we just started putting together, like mapping out what is this going to look like? And we published uh, a white paper and then a follow-up one uh, as well. And we were taking that out and we were taking that out to the customers. And some of them were um, people that, that did get their vaccines approved. And they were like, no, 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 it's not going to be that high. We're like, you need to be able to report and you need like a digital way to do that because human beings can't like service that that volume of adverse events coming in. So it was a really strong message for us. Um, at the time, people were like, "No, no, it won't be that high." And then the, the great again. This is where I find you know, a big compliment for what we did. You know, twelve months, eighteen months, twenty-four months later, that is still being referenced. That not only were we right, we probably slightly underestimated where they were coming in. Wow. Uh And you know, not not that people obviously the number of re- truly serious adverse events have been fortunately extremely low, but the sort of the level of side effects that you're going to get. Actually were born out by all this data that we found, and so we had this great story. It was great to educate and be of interest to the market, but actually it was great for us to show that these guys are experts like these guys really know what they're talking about, and they're gonna help you through what you're gonna you know, have to have to manage because they actually understand truly where you're coming from so for me, that's always the the best way to to get marketing out there and, and it's it's my passion is like I'm going to call it thought leadership, right? This is true thought leadership. It's not just saying what I want to say and you're going to have to read what I want you to read. It's actually, okay, let's take a concept and let's tell you and and, and educate you and make you think in a different way about this situation uh, and how a particular challenge can be overcome and where we can take things. So that's always where my passion is. Um, It's like, let's let's really take a concept and, and really think about where it's going as opposed to, you know, what might be considered thought leadership, which is actually just writing what I think down.
1: Right. I think this is important because we talked offline about Mm. the way a lot of companies do thought leadership is wrong. Yeah. So what's the easiest way for us to articulate and explain to a company, this is how you should do thought leadership properly? What's the process?
0: What's the process? So I think the key there is is to really stop thinking about of internally what what do we want to say but actually start thinking externally what does our customer our buyer our influencer whoever we're speaking to what what do they you know need to understand what are they thinking right now you know how will that how will this need be relevant to them how will it benefit them um i think one of the things that we're all guilty of sometimes is like oh i've got, I've got this thing i want to say and i think it's really cool because and I'm just going to say it that, that because this this is this is this is the way it should be. This is what you should think. Well, and it just doesn't work that way. We as people don't like to be told what to think, right? We 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 want to, um, be walked through something in a way that makes sense and is meaningful and resonates with us. So, for me, that that's what you know. If we're thinking about thought leadership, it's like, what's your end goal? Where do you want people to get to? Okay, but but how can they get there? So everything I do is also a story, and I, I, I you know, when I'm writing, I, I very much write with this sort of narrative of how do we lead people through um, the, this conversation, uh, make sure that it's it's naturally flowing, that it hits the points that resonate with them. You know, find out if you can. And it's not always possible, and sometimes it, it's more difficult than others. You know, from that base that you've got of understanding um, uh, uh, of of your buyer, which obviously is, is always really important. But actually just having conversations or watching conversations, I mean, LinkedIn is a great place to watch conversations and what do people really think and if someone puts something up, our competitor puts something up, how are people responding to that and, and, and what are the concerns that are raising because we can probably address that. Uh, and so for me, yeah, it's very much about, you know, don't think about what I want, think about what, what they want and, and, and what they need to, to follow that message through uh, and why is it different? reading stuff having time to read stuff is really hard I've, I find it really difficult and it, you know I know that I want to read a particular article and I don't have time the day because it's just meeting to meeting and in the evening I'm tired so it's it's got to be truly valuable if you're writing something it's got to have real value for them
1: mm. uh, and resonate it's one of those things that listen to you take us through that process there In some ways, it's like, well, of course, that would be the right way to do it. But it's just so easy to fall into a groove. um friend of mine, uh, Dean, he always says, when you're inside the bottle, you can't read the label. And I think that's what happens with your own thought leadership programs, the content you're creating. You get so trapped inside your own system of what you think is cool. You stop to think, you don't stop to think, actually, is this what the audience needs to know about? Is this what the audience cares about? I love yeah. your point about, um, we call it inceptioning at Bias you know, the movie Inception where they want to give oh, yeah. someone an idea, so they have to go into his dreams and make him think it's his own idea, right? Yes. If, yes. if you want, if you, it's I, such a great thing that you said, because I think if you want people to really take action on something, they have to own it. And the only way they can own it is if it comes to them, not because you told them to do it. Yes. And I think that's really missing a lot. The other thing I loved about your story with um, really news jacking on the back of COVID, but really offering a super informed perspective yeah, is I was listening to um, the Diary of CEO with Stephen Bartlett's podcast. It's, um, I don't know if you've listened to it, George, or for the listeners, it's worth checking out. No, I haven't, actually. Um, he has a number of really great and interesting and diverse people on to speak. And a couple of weeks ago, he had Sadguru, which is like a like a yoga guru from India, just sharing lots of sort of wisdom, really. And one of the things he said was, it used to be that true experts wrote books, but now you read a book, you write a book. There's a lot of expression. There's not a lot of deep perception. And I think that is the other critical piece to thought leadership. The story you told really resonated with me because that was the level of expertise in a given area, which is rare and deep and if you have mm-hmm. those things you can have a voice that other people will pay attention to if you just remix what other people say in a slightly different way it's just not going to cut through and to be honest that's what sooner or later people are going to use chat and ai bots to regurgitate things people have already said thought yep. leadership's about deep experience new stuff
0: yes you absolutely and I sort of, I'm, in, I'm interested that you took on, on the AI side of th- things there because, you know, I, I can spot and I'm sure everyone can, well, everyone in our industry can, you can spot a, a chat GBT, LinkedIn post or article or blog like a thousand miles away because it, it, well, for a start, it's weird words. It's like, yes, that I mean, that's correct, but no one would ever say those things. Like, you know, it's it's just strange, strange language, but it's just, yeah, regurgitating what's there. And I think that what we as you know, marketers need to do is is take that, that further. Um, I was reading something the other day that just, just points out really that, that GPT has access to the most phenomenal amount of, of information. Of course it does. Um, but it doesn't understand the market. It doesn't understand your brand. It doesn't understand your tone of voice. It doesn't know where you're trying to take things. And it has no ability to create anything new um and so it, it's really important that that we continue to recognize the value of of speaking in a way that people understand and and to, again this translation thing i actually wrote my my dissertation on on that on, on translating information between between sort of scientific and 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 commercial groups um translating what we know and understand and you know we've got all these reasons why we understand why this is definitely the best way to do something but actually translating that into something that matters is, is really important
1: yeah i love that in fact that's the most pithy way yet i've heard someone explain the issues with chat so that's a snow sh- yeah. that's a social video snippet right there um <laughs> lauren you'll be listening you'll be editing this that's definitely one to pull out but um <laughs> Right. Let's, um, we're drifting towards the end of the interview now. And there's a couple of like mm-hmm. core questions I love to ask people. So let's start with um, if you could go back in time, 10 years, mm-hmm. 20 years, what piece of career advice would you give yourself?
0: Well, so I, I absolutely know this one because it always sticks in my head. Um, when I was in the lab, actually, uh, I had an amazing supervisor, which is the person that got me out. And he, he said to me, stop worrying about what you think you should be good at and and understand what you are good at. And I, I thought that was the best piece of, piece of advice because I wasn't great at lots of the analytical chemistry types of things. It, it's just not my, my bag at all. Um, and so he's like, understand your value, understand what you're good at, understand what you love and find a way to do that because there's always value in that. Uh, and that was said to me in probably 2001, 2002, but it's... It, it it's never left me. So and it it's still and I do tell myself that all the time when I go, you yeah, know, imposter syndrome, oh you know, I don't know how to do that, I don't know how to do that. Well, it's fine because this is what you do and you're really good at it.
1: Oh, here, here. I love that. There's um <laughs> there's a study by Gallup. I think it was like a ten year study, it was like hundreds of thousands of people, and I'm not gonna do the study justice. But one of the key takeaways I always remember is for people to be truly successful, if as themselves or if you're their manager you're going to get much more impactful results by having people lean into their strengths than to try and fix their weaknesses it doesn't mean you shouldn't work on your weaknesses because i'm sure there's there's value in that but when people figure out what they're good at and they lean into it that's where they can be world-class whereas if you work really really hard on a weakness what just by the law of averages what can you make it to average right so And we all have those, we're all spiky, right? We've all got those bits that we're not great at and those bits we're wonderful at. And I just, yeah. I don't think it gets said enough. So I'm so glad that you said it. I know a lot of people who listen to the podcast are in the early stages of their career. And just to give them the confidence that they can have a career like yours by leaning yeah. into what they're good at is gold. So I appreciate you saying that. What about, let's talk marketing a bit. Um, what do you think is the hardest thing or the biggest challenge for life science marketers?
0: So I really think it's like raising your head above the noise. I, I, f- I find it so often that, that now, I don't know, is it, has marketing changed? It, it I, I feel like when I first got into marketing, there was more differentiation. And I don't think it's just because I was a, a very large business. I think that the way that the ability we have to communicate with the, you know, with the social media, with, with LinkedIn posts, with articles that, you know, digitization of, of what we're doing, it's so easy for people to say, that they can do the same as you. And so this goes back to my ex go things where where the compliment of a competitor saying that they can do what you do is that you're doing the right thing, arguably. But to raise your head and actually be credible is really hard. So for me, that's really where I like to focus and what I think you know, is one of our greatest challenge. Um, if you're claiming the same thing, how do you differentiate that you really can do it? Uh, and that's about... Um, you know, clear and honest communication and, and honesty is so important I always laugh with some people that you know where I'm pushing them as a marketer you know like come on let, what can we say what can we say how far can we go I love to throw glitter on things you can't you can't say something that's not true you can add a bit of a sparkle to, to what you're saying but it's got to inherently be honest mm-hmm. um, and so you know finding a way to, 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 to raise your head through consistent another thing um consistent messaging that's got a differentiation that that's honest and then on top of that I guess the glitter is that vision that I talk about with the thought leadership about where we're going to go with it because if you're all saying the same thing if you're the ones that actually know where you're going with it then you just start to lift that off into differentiation um so I think that's really important um and you can add to that you know sort of making sure you're seen with like loads of different tactics um again you know if if we're Doing a lot of digital, which your marketers, of course, do lots of digital. You know, now people are back in the offices. We're starting to see a little bit more opportunity for for targeted direct
1: outreach. Mm.
0: You know, and 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 direct mail. Who gets a letter? I mean, it's just so exciting to get an actual letter. Um, and so I, I've seen that used in a couple of, or and been involved with using that in a couple of my clients recently. And it has to be really targeted. You have to know that people are going to be in the office. You know, all the things that you know, caveats around it. But when everything's digital to go to go physical again is a really good way to differentiate where you've got opportunities as well as your obviously your your digital mix in there so i think that's really important too
1: there's so much gold to unpack in there i love the idea (laughs) of um balancing authority and authenticity right like i love that yeah um that's what i heard you say right because i think yeah i think that's so critical and i love the fact that when you're talking about what you do today having that authenticity that's rooted in proof points and actual you know if necessary data um, and features that really back something up but you're right vision is that area where we can speculate a little bit more throw a bit more Mm -hmm. sparkle on as you described (laughs) because it hasn't happened yet it's what we're working towards it's what we believe can be and we authentically believe in it but because it's the future we've got a little bit more leeway to play because it hasn't happened yet and so you can speculate a bit more which i never really thought about until you said that but i think it's a real lever so i'm I'm stealing that um in fact we won't probably won't be able to publish this podcast now george otherwise people will know um, that that's what (laughs) i did ideas come from (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) absolutely um and i love also things like direct mail um we've talked about it before on the podcast if everyone's zigging you zag right it's not about what's the coolest new digital software thing? It's like, how can I reach my audience in a place where I can get their attention and no one else is trying to get it? Yeah. Um, so I think that is also great advice for marketers. And I think direct mail is an area, but really think about what what places are there that you can get attention that other people are not vying for, especially if they've fallen out of favor and they're not seen as cool anymore. There's usually a big opportunity in there somewhere.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's really true. Really true.
1: Um, Right. I want to respect your time, George, because you're Mm -hmm. a busy person. But um, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all your wisdom with us. Really, really appreciate it. Um, If people wanted to get in touch with you after listening to this, what's the best way for them to reach you?
0: I think through LinkedIn would be great. So Georgina, I'm a Georgina on LinkedIn. That's my Sunday name. Uh, (laughs) Georgina Fradley uh, on LinkedIn would be be really great. And I'd love to hear from people. So yeah, I've really enjoyed being on this podcast so thank you for inviting me it's it's really made me sit back and look back at my career and like what does really matter and then you can see that these these themes that go all the way through that i don't even realize are there so it's been a lot of fun thank you
1: well the pleasure's been mine and the learnings have all been mine as well so thanks again and i'll look forward to seeing you soon
0: thank you for listening to the life science and marketing podcast For your regular dose of cutting-edge life science marketing insights, don't forget to subscribe. Join us again in two weeks for another engaging expert discussion.